Well, this morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to continue on in our series through Isaiah. And so we're going to be looking at chapters 58 and 59 uh, this morning. We have, I think, after today, I think I'm going to do two chapters till the end of the book, and uh, two chapters per Sunday until the end of the book, which will give us three more Sundays. So with me being away uh, doing some conference speaking uh, this summer, we're expected to finish Isaiah by the end of September. Uh, September 1st, we'll have sort of a special communion Sunday, and then we'll be starting a new series in September, which you'll be very excited for. It's probably going to be the best series in the history of Christianity, and so you don't want to miss it. And as you can imagine, Pastor Sam's going to be preaching, not me, for that series. <laughs> but this morning, it's me. So Isaiah chapter 58, I'm going to read 58. That's all I'll read at this time, work through it, then we'll move into 59 together. So Isaiah chapter 58, uh, this is the Word of God. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. 
If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Before we uh, consider this chapter together, let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would, uh, in your grace and in your mercy and for your name's sake, help us to understand your word. Lord, we are often very, very good at seeing how your word applies to other people. Help us to see how it applies to ourselves. Help us to not deflect the searching of Your Spirit by applying Your Word to the lives of others. Help us to see how it applies to us, and help us to grow. Help us to become more like You, to become more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we would ask that if there are things in our religious services that are displeasing to You, I pray that You will… make that very evident to us, and that you'll also help us to repent uh, as a church together, uh, to come closer to you. Lord, help us to see what it is that you would have for us, uh, to be how you would have us to act. Lord, make us mindful of the things you want us to be mindful of, and help us to grow in those things. Help us to do what we ought to do, because we are the people we ought to be. Uh, transform us from the inside out. It changes on the inside so that our external behavior is modified on the basis of the heart work that you do inside of us. And Lord, may you be greatly praised. May we act in such a way uh, that you are glorified through our time together. So help us to love one another. Help us to love you supremely. Uh, watch over us and keep us safe. And now by your Spirit we pray. Please open your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, this chapter, uh, transparently, begins with a call for the prophet to not be reticent in proclaiming the message that God has for him to proclaim. And sometimes, you know, there are, there are certain messages that you don't mind delivering. Uh, there are others where, you know, there's the expression, you know, don't shoot the messenger. You can kind of feel that way as well. And here Isaiah is told, look, don't be afraid. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Shout it out loud. Don't hold it back. Why? Because there's a community of people, God is saying, my people are continually gathering around. They're getting together and they are coming to me. They are seeking me. And that seems like a positive thing. Uh, for day after day, they seek me out. You see, that's a good thing. They seem eager to know my ways. That seems like a good thing as well. They're asking God for justice. That seems like a positive thing. Uh, they seem eager for God to come near them. And we find out that all of this appearance of uh, religiosity, all of this appearance of actually seeking God, is a thinly veneered disguise for what's actually going on in their hearts. 
This is very much like what you get with the Pharisees in the day of Jesus. In fact, one of the things which is terrifying, and, and we just need to be very honest about this, this doesn't always just apply to other people. The last refuge for a lot of people in terms of keeping God away from them is religious practice. It's the last it's sort of the last fortified city that they'll hold on to. It's their last bastion. Some people, of course, they're just sort of openly rebellious. They, they just want to go live the way they want to live. And, and that, and actually, to be honest, if I had the opportunity to work with people who are openly rebellious and just not interested in God at all, saying, you know, this is how I'm going to live my life and I don't really care what the Bible says, or if I could work with those people or work with people who are inoculated against the gospel because of their sort of religious involvement over the years, I would take the rebellious people in a heartbeat because at least they know where they stand. At least they're open and honest about that. But, But there is nothing which is worse in terms of a relationship with God than religious self-deception. And so what you find here is these people are approaching God to use God. Because they don't want anything, they have no interest whatsoever in righteousness. They have no interest whatsoever in helping other people. They just want God to bail them out of their situations. They just want God to help them. So instead of looking to serve God, they're looking for God to be their servant. Why have we fasted? They say and you have not seen it. In other words, we're doing our part, God, you are clearly failing in your responsibility. Why aren't you seeing how pious we are? Why aren't you seeing how holy we are? Look at us. God, don't you see the checks that we're capable of writing? Like, don't you see what we're doing? Why have you not noticed? Look how humble we are, and you haven't seen it. Yet, God says, Let's, let's take stock. On the day of your fasting, how does it go? Are you actually moving towards me to know me better and to honor me? Are you actually helping other people? The reality is on the day of your fasting, you do whatever you want, and your fasting, verse 4, ends in quarreling and strife, in striking each other with wicked fists. Now, this might seem slightly far-fetched. I'll ask you this. How many of you, no, no judgment, no judgment, just yet, <laughs> it, it, it'll come in a second. How many of you are ever, what's, what's that word that we use today? Hangry. <laughs> That's exactly it. How many of you are ever hangry? How many of you are hunger, hungry, which causes anger? You just get moody. You know, you, you just get upset, and so some people call this being hangry. You know, you're, you're angry because of the hunger. And, and so you look at this, Mark, did you have breakfast this morning? Can, can we get him a snack? Let's get him a snack. Um, and so we know what this is like. You know, you get hungry, you're, you're upset, you know, you get moody, your blood sugar's not regulated, and so I know for myself, if I don't eat fairly regularly, then, then I, just get, I just get feeling weak and shaky, right? And so I need to eat, and I need to eat fairly consistently. I can't go a very long period of time without eating something, particularly protein. So uh, you can, uh, we, we know <laughs> blood sugar, all the rest, it, it does affect us. It affects our moods. As you can imagine, what happens when you get a bunch of ungodly people 
and then you have them not eating? Are they likely to be more cooperative at the end of the day? No, not at all. And so what you have here is these people who are now hungry and cranky and fighting because of their fasting, because this is how they're pleasing God. And they're saying, why haven't you noticed? Look at us. Look what we're doing. And God says, but look at, look at the result. Look at the outcome of this. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And God says, is this what I want? Like, do, do you really think, God says, do you really think I just, that the point is you just giving up food for a few hours? Do you really think that's the point? How, how could you think that, that I care more about you showing your, your dedication to me by skipping lunch than I care about you exploiting your workers? Like, like you really, that's what you think of me? Like, what do you think the point of this fasting is? Uh, To be honest, interestingly enough, we're not really told what the point of fasting is in the Bible. You're not really given the rationale, this is why you fast, one, two, three, four, five, six. There's some ways you can kind of of interpret it, kind of figure it out a little bit. But one of them is probably that in fasting, we begin to realize how utterly dependent we are on external things, and and how difficult it is for us to focus on God. It really is. Uh, I'll I'll be very honest. There there have been times times in my life when I have have fasted, and um, I almost want to say if, if the expected outcome of fasting is feeling really positively close to the Lord, I have never fasted successfully in my life. But I think for some of us, I mean, we struggle enough just to pray. And, and, and if praying is like walking, fasting is like running a marathon. And, and some of us just kind of go, oh, I'm just going to fall out of bed tomorrow and, and run a spiritual marathon. Well, it's probably not going to happen, right? And, and if you're interested, in this, we can talk more about this. This isn't the point today. Uh, but if you're interested in fasting, all the rest, we can talk about some of those things. And, and I think there are ways you can start and, and, and you know, strategies you can put in place which are more or less helpful and all of the rest. But the one thing you know for sure is that if your fasting or religious activity is actually perpetuating violence and animosity and anger and injustice, it cannot possibly be pleasing to God. It just can't be, okay? And that's what these people are missing. So God says, isn't this what I want? Instead of just lying around in sackcloth and ashes, I don't want you just to beat yourselves up or deprive yourselves. Rather, verse 6, this is the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. Verse 7, to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to clothe the naked. I mean, this is what I want. And so, this is actually one of the things which is wonderful too. So, you look at this and you say, wait a minute. Even if we can debate the propriety of physical fasting with food today in the New Covenant era. The one thing that you can't do is go without food for the rest of your life, okay? But the other thing that you can do is that you can actually combat injustice every day the rest of your life. That is, you can live in an orientation of taking care of those who are poor and weak and marginalized. Now, you might not literally be giving food to someone every single day, but you can live in such a way that you actually have means available to help other people. You can do that all the time. Daily decisions can free up more resources, which you can then use to bless other people. 
And so if this is the kind of fast that God wants, if the outcome that God is looking for is for taking care of the poor and weak and oppressed and marginalized, we can actually live our lives making daily decisions which will allow for us to do that well. Some of these things take place in spontaneous daily encounters. Some of these things are strategic that allows us to actually have an impact in the world in the long term because of decisions that we're making today. Now, one of the reasons probably in this society, to be honest, one of the reasons that fasting is tied to sharing food with the hungry, and this is just so far outside of the experience of most of us, but it is not that far outside of the experience of a lot of people in the world today. It's just another reminder that honestly, there's a sense in which all of Canada is a privilege-gated community. And are there poor people inside of Canada? Yes. But the way the average Canadian lives is an order of magnitude higher in terms of affluence and comfort than 98% of the people in the world today. Canada is such a small population base. We just don't understand how odd this is, this whole country society that we have with, with education and healthcare, and, and it's just un, unimaginable for most people in the world. I remember once, shortly after I came back from one of my trips to Africa, and there was, this is when we were in, in Madoc, the small town before we moved here to Guelph, and there was, there was someone in the church who needed a meal. I can't remember for what reason. And so we made, um, I think it was a, a big pot of chili. That's what they had wanted for their family. So we made this, and in the, it's in the slow cooker, and it's, it's off on the counter slow cooking or whatever it is that that happens. I was going to say percolating, but I don't think that's what it does. Uh, it'd be very odd. <laughs> uh, so it's in the slow cooker, and, and then I'm making the meal for our supper. And, and I remember just being struck by the fact that where I had been in Africa, virtually no one could have had the luxury of having either one of those meals and I was so incredibly rich in global standards, I could make an enormous pot of food and not even eat it. Just give it away. It, we, didn't, we didn't miss one, one calorie that day. Like given North America, it might have had more than we needed. People around the world don't have pots of food to give away because they don't have a pot of food for themselves. So one of the actual practical benefits of fasting was you'd go without a meal so you could give that meal to someone who didn't have one. But you didn't have two meals. You had one. And so it was very, very practical. Some of the poorest people in the world today in India, there are churches that practice um, food distribution for the poor and it's called a, a handful of rice. And what they do is when they make their daily allotment of food or, or for their supper, they'll take one handful of rice and set it aside. As desperately as their family could use the extra calories because there are people who are even poorer. And throughout the week, families will set aside rice this way, collect it in the church on Sunday, and it will be distributed to people throughout the week. Can you just imagine how different that would be? If here, we were in a position 
where rather than us putting virtually, if almost nobody could put any money at all into collection plates, but we were all sort of literally bringing a little bag of rice because that's how as a church we're taking care of people. So that's what God's saying here. I don't want you just to, to beat yourself up. What good is that? It's not just to, so you feel bad about yourself or you feel hungry. It's a means to an end. It's realizing how dependent you are on me and also positioning yourself to be able to share freely and abundantly with other people. If that happens, verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness, or perhaps the righteous one, will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Whether, verse 8, it's righteousness or righteous one, the righteousness is probably a reference to God. This is not your subjective uh, righteousness. It stands in parallel to the glory of of the Lord being your rear guard. So it's like your righteousness, that is God, goes before you, and the glory of God comes behind you. It's like He's the vanguard and the rear guard. In other words, you're totally surrounded by the presence of God. If you will live this way, then God's glory will sort of per, He'll be the environment in which you find yourself living. He will surround you and guard you and protect you. And then this is an amazing truth in verse 9. Then at this point, you will call, and God will say to you, here am I. Here am I is actually in the Bible virtually a stereotyped response for standing willing and ready to do someone else's bidding. So when God calls Abraham about Isaac, here am I. Isaiah 6, who shall we send? Who shall go for us? Who will go for us? Here am I. Send me. This is God saying to us, if you will do this, of course I will help you, you see. This isn't God saying, hey, ask me whatever you want. Like, like feed the poor, then ask me for a Lamborghini and I'll give it to you. He's not saying that, unless maybe you're going to sell the Lamborghini to give it to the poor, although we, both, we all know none of us would do that. He's saying, I'm not just going to give you what you want. I will give you what you want if it's what I want you to want. But if you want to stop injustice, if you want to help the poor, if you will do these things, then call on me and I'll be at your bidding because I will work for you because you're working for me. You're doing what I want you to do in the world. And of course, I will help you. And you have to know that. We have to know that, that if anything our church or if anything that anyone in this room has ever done, if we have ever done anything at all that has ever been used for even the slightest bit of spiritual good anywhere in this world, it is not because we were so wise or good or strong or clever or competent. It's because God did it through us. And so what you want is you want God being willing to help you, not so you can just have self-aggrandizement. This isn't for your own pride. This isn't for your own spiritual growth. It's not so you can sit down and, and count all the wonderful things you've done spiritually. God will help you because God wants these things to be done in this world. He helps those who align with His heart. Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, the pointing finger and malicious talk. Enough of this in other words, this could never apply to contemporary evangelical Western churches. But if you would just put all of the effort 
that goes into gossip, into helping other people, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. That's what he says. Stop with the pointing, ta- the, the, the pointing finger, the malicious talk. Focus on injustice. All of the time that goes into all of these conversations which don't do any good whatsoever, which is slander people and run people down. It's malicious. It's hurtful. God's saying, do you, do you not see the world? I, I have to share this. This is... This is just this is totally for free. This does not count for my time at all. My, my oldest daughter, who I believe is in nursery, and you know that I very, very, very rarely talk about my children because I, I think that there's enough pressure on children in a pastoral family. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to be parading them in front of the church all the time. So I'm very, very reluctant to talk about my family. I, I will say this this morning. My daughter, Charlotte, 13, found a Gucci handbag at a second-hand store. It cost her $6.99. She comes and shows me this bag. She says, Dad, look, this is a Gucci bag. I'm like, <laughs> great. Like, I can design one just as nice, but okay, fine. I'm like, that's great. She goes, this is probably worth $2,000. And I said, no, it's not. She says, no, it really is. I'm like, no, it's not. There is no way in this world. It is not possible. I am a wise person. It's this big. There is no way something this big costs $2,000 when you can get one just as functional for $10. there is no way. So she brings, shows me a picture of a Gucci t-shirt with a price tag on it. $1,050. After I somehow managed to give myself like the defibrillator, I was like, what? so I don't know much about computers and the internet, but I but I, I know that Google can find the prices of Gucci handbags. So I type this in: Gucci handbags cost. The cheap ones are like nine hundred and fifty dollars. Like. The expensive ones are like 4000 and And I look at this, and I just think, do, 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 do people, like, are, are there not starving people, like children in the world? Like, my, my, have I missed something and misread world history to think that today there are starving children in the world? Because if there are, and people are spending $4,000 on a purse, Is that possible? That is just impossible to me. And and doubtless all of you have closets filled with Gucci, so I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) 
in conviction, I went home and sold all of my Gucci suits and all of the rest. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. But, guys, honestly, the Lord, the Lord doubtless does like aesthetics and fashion. I'm not, I'm not dumping on fashion. But surely the church should prioritize money slightly differently. Surely in the church we should be far more concerned with those who have less than we do than to spend I only say this then I move on. We also serve a Lord who said, You who have two coats should give to him who has none. So it's not merely how expensive one garment is, it's also perhaps for some of us the unconscionable acquisition of quantity of clothes that never even gets worn. If you get rid of this, the Lord will guide you always, verse 11. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. Think of like a burning desert. In the burning desert, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Then your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. In other words, oh my goodness, God is saying, look, this whole society, it's so decadent and wicked in my sight. Even religion is totally corrupted. But if you will just come back to me, this is, in the one, this is the one of the things that Isaiah does all of the time. Isaiah always calls a spade a spade, sometimes very harshly, right? This is wrong. This is wicked. God is filled with wrath because of this. God is going to judge you because of this. God will destroy you. If things continue this way, God will become as a warrior and a destroyer. But there's always these accents of hope, though. But it doesn't have to be that way. Come back to God. Come, let us reason together. Come see what God offers you. You can be the one who repairs the broken walls. In other words, God can use you to be the rebuilder of the city. God can use, Jesus will, of course, talk about us being salt and light. And so there's a sense in which, of course, our calling is not just to sit back bemoaning the fact that society seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Our job is to actually to, to be an agent, to be a preservative agent in that, to, to work to repair it. To, to not just wring our hands and be hopeless, because God has called us to have an impact in the world, and we should, we ought to. And, and so, as God works for us, as God stands to help us, as we align ourselves with His heart and priorities, we should expect to see certain things being rebuilt and repaired in our world. There are things that are functionally horribly wrong. So, you identify that, and then you go to work. You fast, you pray, you do whatever you want, and you work, too. What an amazing legacy. I mean, it probably wouldn't be in these words, but, but how beautiful, honestly, at, at, at our funeral services, which, unless the Lord returns, there will be one for everyone in this room eventually. If part of the legacy was that person, they were, they were a restorer of the city. God used them to rebuild. You know, they, they, they worked hard in their little patch. They were like a well-watered garden surrounded by desert. 
And then uh, verses 13 through 14, the Sabbath again is highlighted in terms of covenant with Israel. Sabbath is highlighted because that's a symbolic of the covenant. If you will act in this way, summarizing the covenant law, then uh, if you honor the Lord, then verse 11, you will find your joy in the Lord. I will cause you to ride in triumph. You will feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob, because God has declared it. Again, Isaiah, much like a lot of the apocalyptic literature, presents polarized options. Amos will do the same thing. Amos's language is even more blistering. I hate, I despise your religious gatherings, God says through the prophet Amos. Here, it's roughly the same thing. You have two options. God will either hate what you do religiously or He will use what you do religiously to be a blessing to the world and and to bring great glory to His name. Those are the options. And so, we can be a church, by God's grace, that actually is a repairer and restorer, where we find joy in the Lord, we ride in triumph, and we feast on the inheritance that He has for His people. That's presented to us. God offers that to us. But he offers that to us in the context of a great warning. Oh, don't, don't ever think, God says. Don't ever think I'm impressed by your church attendance. Don't, don't ever think I'm impressed by the size of the check you can just drop in the offering plate. No, I, I see how you act in the world. I see the outcome. I see how that's what I watch. That's what I care for. Well, may God help us that when we gather, our gatherings don't end with, you know, metaphorically the striking of evil fists, but we actually build each other up as the Lord uh, is pleased with what we do. And because of that, or, or, or one of the reasons that we can have hope in that is in the first verse of chapter 59, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save nor his ear too dull to hear. So this, this connection, at the beginning they're saying, why have we fasted and you haven't seen? We're crying out to you and you haven't heard. God says, do you think, do you think I'm hard of hearing? Lately, do you think I can't hear you? Of course I can hear you. The problem is not my hearing. You know, I, I don't need the hearing aids. I, I can hear you just fine. Don't think I'm not acting because my arm can't reach you that I'm not strong enough to help you. Do not say the arm of the Lord is too short or his ear is dull of hearing. Your iniquities have separated you from God. The next eight verses, he, he paints this picture of, of deceit and violence. He says, look, you, you, you're poisonous like snakes. You're clothing yourselves in spider's webs. You're not following me. You're not helping other people whatsoever, and you're blaming me for it. But, but it's you. It's your sin that separated you from me. It's not that I can't reach or that I can't hear you. It's that, frankly, and this is one of the, this is one of the most frightening things there is. I, I, I really believe this is one of the most frightening entailments of sin that there is. A lot of us actually don't want God to be close to us. A lot of us, we, we just want some space. I, we, just, we just want this little, at least this, uh, we want to set the parameters of a, of a personal bubble in which not even God gets too close to us. 
we don't always want God to hear us. Or we only want him to hear us to do what we want him to do, the way we want it done in our time frame. But for God to actually show up, given carte blanche to do whatever he wants in our lives, how many of us actually want that? Truly. Now, the re religiously, we say we do. But really, there's no resistance there. there, there there's no desire for autonomy. There's no, I mean, C.S. Lewis has, just following George MacDonald, actually, C.S. Lewis has this great illustration about when God starts renovating people's lives. And he says, you know, so, so when we come to Christ, most of us will sort of acknowledge, you know, like in terms of a house, this metaphorically, we've got some issues. Okay. Not as many as the person next door, but we have some issues. You know, the, the roof leaks a little bit, you know, electricity's a little bit on the fritz, you know, probably, you know, the pipe in the wall leaks, and so, so some things that we want done. So we expect God's going to fix those things. Maybe rip out the old ugly carpet, put down nice hardwood or whatever. So he's going he's to spruce us up. And, and, and then God kind of comes into our lives and like smashes down a wall. And you go, wait a minute, I, I liked that wall. <laughs> like, like what are we doing here? You know, you're supposed to take care of this problem. This is what I want you to fix. And, and God says, yeah, you know what, that's, that's great. That's not my priority. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's down digging out the foundation. You're like, hey, hey, wait, you know, this hurts. This isn't what I call this. Is what I, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for these very controlled, nice renovations that I could oversee. And, and Lewis, following McDonald, says, yeah, but, but what God's doing is he's, he's basically looking at you as a little shack, and he's saying, no, no, I'm going to. I'm going to make you know. I'm going to make you into a, a palace, eventually. I, I'm just going to blow out that whole wall, and like build, build this beautiful wing out here. I, I'm, I'm going to just knock off the top so I can add a few more stories. I'm going to build you up in a way you can't imagine. But the process, and we have we have Thomas. Uh, Thomas here obviously knows way more about building and construction than I do. One of the things that I think is true, and this is just from like cleaning up my room, is that sometimes things look a lot more messy before they start looking good. Is that, is that fair to say? <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes you got to get it. You got to knock some stuff down before you can build stuff up the way it's going to be. Let's be honest. How many of us want God knocking stuff down in our lives? How many of us really want God? Come on in. Come on and bring the wrecking ball. Blow out whatever you need to blow out. How many of us really want that? Versus God in a very controlled way, I'll tell you the projects the way I want you to do it. Just a few tweaks. Just help me out. No, God is coming in. He's not, his arm isn't too short to save. His ear isn't too dull to hear. He has his agenda in our lives, though. So he comes in. And verse 9 says, justice is far from us, righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. In other words, they're always in darkness because the darkness is inside of them. We're blind, we, verse 11, we growl like bears. We look for justice, but find none for deliverance, but it is far away. Verse 12, our offenses are many in your sight, our sins testify against us, our offenses are ever with us. We acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, 
and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The society is so bad, so corrupt here, that even those who turn against evil are rejected. Conclusion. The Lord looked and was displeased. Why? That there was no justice. One of the things Isaiah shows us again and again is that God is a God of rightness and justice. You get that just in this text, but is, is it, haven't, for those of you who have been here for a number of months, haven't we seen this so often? God cares profoundly about what we would call social justice, but we would have to add to that as Christians, social justice is nothing more than God's justice implemented in society. This, is, this isn't about some sort of, you know, humanist manifesto justice. This is about God's justice implemented in society. That's what social justice is. Uh, in fact, a lot of our so, so, so-called so, self-styled social justice warriors today are trying to implement the opposite of what actually is social justice because they are trying to implement a, an agenda which is utterly opposed to the standards of God. You cannot have social justice apart from biblical principle. And so, all social justice, which God cares deeply about, is God's justice worked out in society. He looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw there was no one. He was appalled there was no one to intervene. May that never, never be possible for God to say about us. I, I looked into all of the injustice that people at Crestwick Baptist Church knew perfectly well about, and who stood up to do anything? No one. No one intervened. He was appalled that no one intervened. So what did he do? His own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. Now, this text should sound vaguely familiar. It's, it's echoed all through, from Isaiah's day until it finds its culmination where? In the New Testament. Ephesians 6. When Paul tells us to put on the armor of God, what he's actually doing is telling us to put on God's armor. That is, this is the armor God puts on first. His righteousness in the breastplate, helmet of salvation on his head. Paul works out the metaphor with a bit more detail. But this is, it's the, put on the armor of God because it's actually the armor God clothes himself in when he goes to war. And so if we're going to be going to spiritual warfare, we need to wear the armor God wears. This is actually a really, I don't know, it's been a lot of years since I've been a youth pastor, but this is, this is the word I want to use. This is pretty cool. Like, like God, has his, God has his set of armor, and he has, he has a set that's designed for us. Like, like, it fits us. This isn't David in King Saul's armor where it doesn't fit. God has a tailor-made set of divine armor for you. So when you go to war, you, you look just like him. Like father, like son. God puts on his armor. He gives you your set. You put it on too. 
I don't really think I want to go to war, but if God's the person right next to me in His armor, I'm feeling pretty confident, right, if God's the one who has my back. Righteousness, salvation. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere His glory. For He will come like a pent-up flood. The breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Again, guys, no matter how far gone things are, God is a God who works to save. His own arm works salvation. The helmet of salvation is on His head. People revere His glory. He comes along like a flood. He is the Redeemer. This is our God. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you, that is now speaking to the servant, my spirit who is on you will not depart from you. My words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. In other words, when God gets a hold of His people, when He begins to transform His people, it's not just a temporary thing. This blessing of the Spirit of God is for them, it is for all who repent, it's for their children, for their descendants, for all the rest of time. Those who turn from their sin, who trust in the Lord, will be blessed by the Spirit of God as they are redeemed through the salvation that God Himself brings about. That is a promise until the Lord returns. That is a glorious promise. And again, you start, again, as a unit from chapter 58, these are not the most promising people in the world that God is blessing this way. These are not people who are eagerly seeking God, trying to do what is right. These are people who are looking like they're seeking God to keep Him away from themselves. It's these people God will save. It's these people God will work with. It's these people that God transforms, which means, and this is something which is very, very good for us, it means that there is never a time for us to ever not have hope for any individual when it comes to their relationship with God, because God is a God who can save any, and He does. Now, what you want to do, well, actually, not what you want to do, what I want to do, and doubtless you would love me to do, but I'm not going to until two weeks from now, because I'm away next Sunday, is you just want to stop, you, you, you want to keep going, because you remember Obviously, Isaiah did not stop at this point and then write a big six zero and start a new chapter. He just keeps going. And what he writes next is because of all that the Lord is doing, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. You just want to carry on into chapter 60. Because what God is doing is saying, oh, I promise I'll do this. And in chapter 60, he's doing it. He's actually doing it. The people are seeing what happens when God works in their lives. It's not a promise that he doesn't deliver on. He says he'll do it. And then he does arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Regular people like you. The glory of the Lord. His righteousness before you. Glory your the rear guard, the glory rising upon you. You can't read Isaiah 58 and 59 and think that that is at all what these people deserve. It's not at all what we deserve. Salvation is by grace alone, because that's the kind of God who exists in heaven. Well, may He help us. May He help us to understand His grace, but may He also help us to understand His justice. 
And so he empowers us to live in this world, not just theoretically, but actually doing what he wants us to do practically, to work to end injustice and to take care of these people. That's the fast that God desires. I'm going to invite our musicians to come at this time and lead us in a closing song.